0: and welcome back to the Eye of Faces. Welcome to A Feast for Crows, part three to Scraps and the Scrolls, part of the Valar Arenas project from the history of Westeros. Welcome back. I welcome you to a beautifully sunny England. As always, there are wonderful clouds in the sky and, well, you know I like clouds. I hope you are all similarly well. I hope we find you in a place of peace and safety, at least there are still many, many terrible things going on in the world. I have plugged it before. I will plug it again. Please do go back listened to a couple of episodes ago we have the very long very well researched list of resources where you can support different facets of the black lives matter movement everything is still going on nothing is quieted down so please keep your support going wherever you can similarly although here in england much of the country is opening back up in terms of shops and things like that well that is wonderful for the people that need that do remember, we're also still in a pandemic. People are still unfortunately meeting their ends, and it is very tough on many. So, please be smart and be safe out there, whatever part of the world you're in. You Either way, I hope we find you on a good day, and I hope you're ready for more Feast for Crows. I'm not sure how we are already on part three. This is such a short book in comparison to the others, so we're really streaming through. We're like a quarter of the way through the book already. Madness. Before we get going today, I of course want to say thank you to our many many patrons and specifically i would like to say the biggest of thank yous to Archmaster dune healer of the lesser boxes to lady raj mistress of Horse, to the wonderful km to the amazing jennifer t and finally to lord commander Namian and great name as always thank you so much thank you to all our patrons we're so glad to be still welcoming more of you we like our community growing and hopefully you've been enjoying what you've been getting our patron page it's been very busy the last week or so and that will only continue with storm's end still on its way do not worry i have not forgotten about that that is coming other than that not too much to speak about before we get going here today i would only mention that personally uh, if you're brave enough to follow me on twitter because i know it is a bit of a chore you'll seen that i tweet out recently uh my tweets while still, of course, A Song of Ice and Fire focused, will drift slightly into some of my personal writing because I've reached a new stage of that in terms of querying and sending that off into the, the realms of uh, agents and stuff like that to see what happens. And so I said, fair enough, some of you are not interested in that. I don't blame you. So if you need to go elsewhere for a bit, absolutely fine. Don't worry, that's not going to leak too much into the podcast. I won't be updating you of progress every week because that's not what you're here for. But I do appreciate many, many of you sent kind words and retweets and stuff like that uh, and private messages. So that is always wonderful to hear that so many people are interested in something that I've written myself instead of just looking at the wonderfulness that is George. So I thank you. That is lovely. And if you are interested, if you do want to know more, just ask because I'll talk about it all day, however uncomfortably. But don't worry, I'm not going to submit your ears to that much torture. Instead, let's get right into it straight away today, shall we? We have another four chapters for you today, and it's actually a very similar structure to last week's episode, which I hope you enjoyed. We have Cersei 2, Jamie 1, Brienne 2, and Sansa 1. So right away, we have two returning characters from last week, in Cersei and Brienne, we have two second chapters, and also, like last week, we have two opening chapters. The important one, I believe, is Jamie. He's the bigger part of this book. We'll come to Sansa in a minute, but I spoke about that right when we had our opening episode, Viser Crows Jamie might be my favourite arc, even if he's not the um, most frequent or perhaps most noticeable compared to Cersei and Brienne. He might be my favourite, especially when he gets into the Riverlands. So I'm very much looking forward to talking some Jamie today. Also, like last week, we have starting with a Cersei, but we're ending with a Stark sister, which unfortunately is going to be very rare for us in this book. So just appreciate it where you can, because yeah, we're not used to not having this much Stark. It's going to be a very, very different book going forward like we've said so often already let's begin then shall we with our first chapter of the day in Circe 2 so we're right back into it with Circe we had our first opening chapter last week and we're already getting another one because she is going to be the most frequent POV in this book and my wife is the maths head in the in the house she could probably tell you how to work out the different frequencies of different POVs in different books etc etc but i thought this one had to be the highest so i did go and check in my own mathematically stunted way i just want to look at who has the biggest percentage of povs in the different books And i've checked and i was right it is cersei cersei has 22 percent of the pov chapters in a feast for crows which just edges out Tyrion and ned for most dominant in, uh, in *In clash of kings and game of thrones respectively they were both about 21 just below 21 so cersei just pips it she is The biggest POV of any book. Pretty surprising. I think most of us probably would have guessed Ned, if I'm honest. But because there's less chapters in A Feast for Crows, Cersei wins it. So we were dead on with what we said at the beginning about Cersei. She is the character of this book. In terms of frequency, she has one six-chapter gap, and that's it. All the rest are four or three or two. So she's definitely one of the most consistent in a book so full of change. In this different structure where we have so many more different POVs, and it's flying around left, right, and centre, Cersei is the constant. In fairness to Brienne, who was also coming up today, she only ever has five chapter gaps, so it's not that much different, but she has three or four of them. So Cersei, again, just pips her in this respect. Brienne can't win it all, I guess. Now, as for the chapter we're dealing with today, where Cersei won, dealt with that initial blow and the discovery of Tywin. Today, we have much more on the aftermath and the final goodbye to Tywin, which we'll also cover in Jamie. You know, it's the famous smelly one. And then we have the introduction of what is going to come after. What do we do now? What is Cersei going to do post Tywin? And more importantly, how are the crows going to react to this particular feast? Because it's a big old feast, isn't it? Last chapter was fairly contained in just two or three rooms with really one prevailing subject. Whereas this one will deal with several different key elements of King's Landing that we're going to have throughout the book. This is much more setup of the whole King's Landing arc, whereas last chapter was really just about Cersei and Tywin's death. So it's mainly framed around Tywin's funeral, sure, but we'll also see King Tommen and his interactions with Cersei, which we really haven't seen that much of through the series. We'll see Lancel, we'll get some hints on the faith. The Tyrells will be much more present in this chapter, mainly Mace in this instance, with a bit of a Lena thrown in. We'll have word on Gregor and what's happening with him. And finally, a key meeting with Kevin that will really set the tone for Cersei's future ruling and the state of the small council and the state of rule in Westeros so lots to discuss in this first chapter and all of those things I've just mentioned there are a a great roundup of key Cersei elements there's her denial of there being anything wrong with Tywin's corpse there's her paranoia over keeping Tommen safe there's the constant power waging with the Tyrells inside her own head and her blind pride ruling her political mind with Kevin all while not seeing what these many interactions could actually mean for later we begin with a dark rain on King's Landing Rain is not all that uncommon in the city, but we generally think of it as a hot place, and now the clouds and rain are really going to be common as we move forward. Cersei likely thinks that is the gods paying tribute to Tywin's funeral. I think the majority of us believe it is much more symbolic of the dark times about to cover the city now that Cersei is in charge. Most prominently, it shows the passage of time. Compare this to the stinking hot city we met with Erard and Sansa and I Remember those first descriptions, ned had of of riding in and his his sweat stained tunics and stuff like that this is very different king's landing we have moved on that place is long ago the seasons are moving forward and again we are heading into a new phase of the series as we've said several times already in these early chapters The first few pages of this chapter are mainly concerned with the relationship between Cersei and Tommen and we're going to see now how different it is from her interactions with Joffrey which we didn't even get that many of really not too many key Joffrey Cersei scenes but more than Tommen. In fairness we were never in Cersei's mind for those interactions with Joffrey and we definitely didn't see them in any capacity when Joffrey was Tommen's age so who knows what she was like then maybe she was like this with Joffrey but I don't think so. What is clear right on this first page is that the relationship between Cersei and her youngest is very very complicated and I personally find it one of the more interesting parts of our arc. I mentioned last week we're going to see Tommen have his own little mini arc, his own little growth in this book and it's very very interesting where that's going to go. Just in this initial conversation that we have to start the chapter we find motherly concern, we find that Cersei doesn't respect her son's nature as a, a timid and more gentle person and that she is rather sharp or cold with him. For concern, she's worried about him catching a cold. She's worrying he's not eating, he seems thinner. And some of that is genuine motherly care that any parent would have. But it's understandably magnified for Cersei because she's already lost one child, her cherished firstborn, and had another shipped off to Dawn. Her father has just been murdered also, so I think we can forgive her for being worried about another tragedy being just around the corner. You would be a bit on edge. But it's the way she addresses it that's interesting. She doesn't try to comfort Tommen. She isn't gentle with her words. She chides him. She's sharp. Now, okay, I'm not a mother or a parent myself, so far be it for me to comment on parenting techniques, but this doesn't seem like the route that I would personally take. And even when Cersei gets what she wants with Tommen obeying her, she doesn't like that either because it's too easy, gives in too quickly. She doesn't see the strength that she supposedly saw in Joffrey. He, She doesn't think he has what it takes. And I think that's what really shows out here is Cersei having such a different experience with a young Joffrey and how maniacal and confident and arrogant he was and how that experience colours her parenting here. She's just not used to a much more normal child in Tommen. She's used to the crazy and now she doesn't know how to deal with it. Some of this worrying on his strength transfers into the concern list as well because she knows how vulnerable he is as a king. How does she know? Well she's already personally taken down one. Cersei's worried that someone like her will come along and put a target on her son's back. While we are talking about concern there's a really interesting sentence I want to highlight for our first quote of the day. Here it is. She could not risk Tommen growing ill, not with Macella in the hands of the Dornishmen. Okay, so that really makes it seem like Cersei is looking at her son like some kind of commodity, and if he goes, she'll have none left and thereby no connection to her power. A share of it is an emotional vulnerability, in that she'll have no children left, but it doesn't come off great for her, almost as if, if Myrcella were still here in King's Landing, the threat of Tommen growing ill wouldn't be so dire, that's how it reads to me. But most of all, first off, we are reminded just how young and innocent Tommen is, and we really have to feel bad for the little guy, because a rough time is coming for him, and we're only going to see more of him being treated like an object or commodity and not just from cersei either it does not make for fun reading two of the people i want to see succeed the most in the series if anyone can be termed as succeeding are Tommen and mysella but i'm really not sure if you're going to be so lucky in that regard. But we do get to at least see more of them in this book. Marcela, obviously, we know it's coming in the Dornish storyline. And Tommen is going to come back later today in Jamie's chapter. We're going to see another fun interaction. It's a little bit better than this one, but well, not too much because Cersei's there too. But we'll come to that later. A quick note from the bottom of this first page is Cersei always has some intent to do something later. There's always something else. And we're going to see that going forward. Already by the end of this first page, she's made a mental note to talk to the steward. Now she's thinking she has to talk to the goldsmiths. There's always something to do later, something to sort, and it gives the impression of a very untidy mind and maybe one not best suited for rule. Something we do get to enjoy is Tommen innocently pointing out that none of the small folk have turned up for Tywin's funeral, whereas they did for Robert's. We know Robert was pretty far from a saint himself, but he certainly wasn't Tywin, so this is just the first part of this legacy that Tywin is leaving. When Eddard died, there was mourning aplenty across the north from the noble and the humble alike. In fact, we still have much of that to come in dance when Stannis hits up the mountain clans. Even already in this book, we've seen the reaction of dawn in relation to Oberyn's death. People care about these other figures, but nobody cares about Tywin. He is already being forgotten. But one of Cersei's staples as a ruler is flat out denying obvious facts. I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you out there in the real world. Hmm, does to me. And she kicks it off here by blaming the rain for this absence of the small folk, even as she mentally concerns herself with the following thought. King Landing had never loved Lord Tywin. He never wanted love, though. You cannot eat love, nor buy a horse of it, nor warm your halls on a cold night, she heard him tell Jamie once, when her brother had been no older than Tommen. So there we go, Tywin's parenting wrapped up neatly for us, and a superb explanation for why Cersei is the way she is. We already discussed last chapter about her not seeking adoration, she just wants superiority, and this is where that want comes from. Love is not important to the Lannisters, how it is. Yet again, it's at the direct opposite to the teachings of Eddard Stark. Note also, this is similar to what Eriah Hotar was telling us about fathers giving advice to their children, except in that instance, Duran was directly telling his daughter. Cersei merely had to overhear, because what possible use could a daughter be other than a body to sell, in Tywin's mind? Cersei will follow up this denial in the very next paragraph, when they arrive at the Sept and find there's more gold cloaks than there are mourners. She tells herself there'll be more later, but interestingly continues to shrug off the emotion of it all, because she believes she has a realm to rule and that her father never would have felt emotion at such a thing. Cersei will eventually come to tell us how she's better than Tywin Lannister ever was, but the level at which she tries to imitate him early on really stands out, same as it does with Jaime and even Tyrion at times. It goes to show the effect it can have when a parent refuses to show any affection, just like Cersei is doing to Tommen right now. Hmm, funny enough. When Cersei and Tom get to the set, they meet with the High Septon, and ironically, Cersei immediately begins to suspect this particular High Septon of our many when she remembers that he was raised up by Tyrion. She isn't nearly so cautious about the incoming High Sparrow because he was of her making, and it's not herself she ever needs to be worried about right? As far as we know, this High Septon is the real deal, a genuine, nice guy. But Cersei treats him as she probably should have treated the Sparrow. Unfortunately for rereaders, we know this old man, this gentle, nice guy, will eventually join the huge list of the Cersei victims in this book. And just before we move on from him, I want to note, he has a weirwood staff. And I know I say this every week, I'm pretty sure, but if, if... Bran or someone else somehow finds how to look through disconnected weirwood, old weirwood like this staff. Well, this would be another major one to look out of, wouldn't it? We had Aya's door on the House of Black and White last week. Now we have the staff of the High Septon. That would be pretty useful, but I'll leave it there. I'll try not to repeat that again today. As Cersei enters the Sept, she thinks of herself having friends among her father's bannermen. She's half right, but a large part of this book will be discovering how she's also half wrong. While many will remain loyal to her because of her name, many will deviate far more to Kevin or to Jamie. Because of their deeds and their record and also for many of them because of their inherent sexism the ones who stay with her are mainly doing so for tywin's memory not because of cersei herself a large part of what we discover in this book is that the name is not enough true loyalty you need other elements too ones that cersei is extremely lacking in much is made in cersei's mind about what the respective lannisters are wearing that fits we know they've always been about appearances even while claiming that they don't care what other people think remember what we said about tywin Riding in on his horse at the end of Clash of Kings into the frame room, so she's already warned Tommen about keeping his cloak out of the rain. She's fought on her own dress. Now, when we enter the main hall, she mentally chastises Jaime for wearing his white Kingsguard armor over his crimson, even though she herself is wearing black. We already know and will discuss in the next chapter the reasons why Jaime has done this. Going back to Storm, he's already seceded himself from the main Lannister branch and committed himself to being a good Lord Commander. But we'll talk about him more in the coming chapter. We also focus in on what Lord Tywin Lanster is wearing in his final appearance, and I'll read it for you here. He wore his finest plate, heavy steel enameled a deep dark crimson, with gold inlay on his gauntlets, greaves and breastplate. His rondels were golden sunbursts, a golden lioness crouched upon each shoulder. A maned lion crested the great helm beside his head. Upon his chest lay a longsword and a gilded scabbard, studded rubies, his hands folded about his hilt and gloves of gilded mail. Even in death, his face is noble, she thought. Although the mouth... In a later Jamie chapter, Jamie will comment on how Tywin entered the city in this armour and leaves it draped with a banner. We get that vibe here. Again, think back to that throne room scene after the Blackwater, with Tywin wearing this armour for all to see. Now, this is his last appearance, but I think we can all see the symbology of him being dressed in his very best, but something being not quite right with what's happening beneath that first layer. The rot, finally, is out for all to see. I like to think George is telling us, poison or not, this putrid smell is what Tywin Lannister has actually always been made of. This is really what's been beneath the veneer, so to speak. Cersei already begins denying that smell, begins to find people to blame. This time round, it's Pycelle. Oh, and she's also sharp with Tommen again, all while glorifying Joffrey in her mind yet again, because that's just who she is. Next quote from Cersei. I shall be greater though, a thousand years from now, when the Mace is right about this time, you should be remembered only as Queen Cersei's sire. I point that out just because there are many, many Cersei quotes in this book that really make you chuckle and this is one of them. While kneeling beside her father's corpse, Cersei does a mini roundup of the others who make up this current court and of each instance she thinks on why she hates them or how she can beat them. Jamie is just indifferent to her, he's not meeting her eyes and that's pretty telling. Again, we'll focus on that relationship uh, in Jamie's coming chapter. There's Pycelle who th- she thinks about having whipped and there's also Marjorie we know is a real focus of her hatred instead of consoling her son or mourning her father cersei spends her time wondering how best she can usurp and corrupt the young women around marjorie to bring the younger queen down that's how she's using her father's funeral we also get our first Lancel sighting of the book he's going to turn out to be very important going forward obviously his most important since his injury, that Cersei made a thousand times worse, don't forget. So it's important that we get that established. Cersei doesn't waste any time feeling guilt for either the physical pain she put upon Lancel, nor the abuse or her use of him while Jaime wasn't around. In a couple of pages' time, she's going to have a private conversation with him and save all her thoughts for what danger Lancel could represent in terms of what he's told his father or even the High Septon. And we know which one of those is actually the bigger danger. The closest Cersei gets to actual reflection is admitting it was a mistake to both Knight and bed Lancel. But of course, she gets nowhere near the connection that it was her extra attack on his wound not getting him so near to death and thereby pushed him towards this religion that is now so dangerous to her. The fact that Cersei is responsible for her own fate will forever escape her, as we well know with her obsession on the Valonqar prophecy. But it is wonderful foreshadowing to bring up Robert and Lancel now after so long, because they are going to be important when those accusations start flying. All the mourners are now noticing the smell that even Cersei can no longer ignore. And while Cersei is correct, none would dare mock Tywin to his face in life. As we ascertained with her earlier story about Ares and Old Lord Meriwether, the fact is he's getting mocked now. We as readers can relish that. We know being mocked is Tywin Lannister's worst nightmare, so it's fitting this is what he's finally getting in his last appearance. We next meet Felice Stokeworth, another unfortunate victim of Cersei's, along with her husband, Sir Bauman, who also doesn't have long left to live. Again, like discussed last week, Cersei just has zero people skills. The Stokewursts are a relatively small house, and this isn't even their head honcho, but they have value of some level, and Cersei should be realising that as a new leader, supposedly with enemies on every corner, she should be welcoming that. Even on the non-political side of things, these are people trying to please her, to honour Tywin's name, and ally with her. Even if she doesn't like the way they are doing it, her reaction is not going to do anyone any favours, and will just result in her own weaknesses but she has to be this way because she thinks that's how tywin would have done it the thing with cersei is as Littlefinger will go on to say later she has absolutely no idea how to play this game of thrones that she thinks she has mastered she believes herself to be playing in the nba if you want to use my analogies when really she's just dribbling the ball off her own foot again and again and again now i've already mentioned her interaction with Lancel. she does come face to face with her perceived rival of the book marjorie which again is fitting for later on with are just setting up that conflict but Marjorie gets passed over for now. Although, do note the different way that Cersei reacts when she hears that Lady Graceford may also name her child Tywin. She's just gone off on Philly Stoke work, but for Lady Graceford, no, she's very polite. Because she would not dare to be a bully to the Tyrells, not yet. Much more of note is Cersei's first interaction with Tana and Meriwether. Tana was pointed out to us at the end of Storm in Tyrion's Trial, but this is the first real time we're seeing a connection between her and Cersei between the two women and that's a facet of Cersei's arc that we've really not come to discuss yet it'll become more important as we go obviously but even in this very brief interaction we get the hints of what's to come Cersei hearing what she wants to hear the fact that Taena is ambitious and the sexual chemistry between the pair as well like I say this is just we're really just planting seeds for all these different parts of Cersei's arc in this chapter this is much more of the setup this is really like the chapter one of Cersei's arc in last one was more of a prologue if, if Cersei was just going to be a book on her own all those meet and greets lead to mace tyrell and cersei's first real political test as the de facto ruler mace is all grace nice rhyming and offering and offerings of help he puts the realm first and seems committed to helping the iron throne and letting his soon-to-be son-in-law keep his crown that sounds good but of course that is what a man who wants to increase his own power and influence would say as well so we can't totally blame cersei for being concerned about his motives but again, it's how she deals with it that is normally the issue. Mace makes these claims of promises from Tywin, and I don't believe we ever have confirmation of Tywin actually naming Garth the Gross as Master of Coin, and giving these positions of pawns to his son. So, is Mace just taking advantage of the situation, and pressing where he can't be contradicted, normally, anyway? We don't know, and neither does Cersei. Instead of taking a moment to think, though, she reacts instantly, thinking only her constant Tyrell's equal bad line of thinking, and then insulting Mace in the process. She's also forced to now nominate Giles Rosby as her preferred master of coin. Is that because he's well-suited? Because he might bring her some advantage? No, it's because he is her choice and he isn't a Tyrell. That's about it. Luckily, Olena is on hand to take Cersei down a little peg, with some underhanded comments about this Lord Tywin stink. Cersei does her best to return in kind, but unfortunately, she just isn't on the Queen of Thorns level. Defeated on one point, Mace instead brings up Tommen and Marjorie's need to be wed very soon, Another set-up for what's to come in this book. And we'll note as well that Marjorie is already suggesting to Tommen that he could go to Highgarden after they're married. Hmm, dastardly plan to control the king or innocent offer from fiancé? You can never quite tell of the Tyrells, but that does sound very, very similar to what was said to Sansa, for whatever that's worth. Once Tommen and Cersei leave the proceedings, Cersei gets to actually appointing Charles Rosby after announcing the fact, and gives some thoughts to how much she'd prefer Littlefinger. Like those before her, Cersei absolutely underestimates Littlefinger, and does not realise what he is, the danger that he is. Or, of course, what he has actually done to her own family, what he's responsible for. Still, it's an intriguing proposition. Let's just say that Baelish does get kicked out of the veil, and that's a subject that's also coming up later in this episode, would he have returned to the capital to take his old post? Obviously, he would have had to stash Sansa somewhere first if he still has her, but even disregarding that, if even if Sansa wasn't a factor, would he dare return to a city with Elena Tyrell still in it, knowing what she knows? I say doubtful. Before we get into Kevin and the closing of the chapter, Cersei has another of these many, many meetings, it just never stops. It really is quite an introduction to the life of a ruler for her. This time it is Kyburn, adding a new element to the mystery of Tyrion's escape. We learn of the escaped Gaola, the one we know to be Varys, thanks to Jamie, and again, that's going to come up in his chapter, and the fact that Kyburn is smart enough to look a little bit deeper than everybody else. His search has turned up what Jamie did not, the gold coin of the gardeners. Remember us talking about coins being of importance early on in Pate's chapter. This is a wonderful, wonderful part of Varys' genius, planting said coins here, completely removes any connection between he and Rugen, instead pointing the finger, of the hand, straight at the Tyrells, which Cersei is definitely keen enough to leap upon. I wonder if Varys went back and added it after the fact of Tywin's murder, because do you think Tywin would be taken in by such a ploy? Hmm, not sure, possibly. Then again, I suppose you wouldn't know that Kyburn's coming to look, so that doesn't make much sense. It's just wonderful how brilliant Varys is at knowing Cersei's predisposed notions and prejudice and how to use them against her best. As we know from the epilogue, it fits brilliantly for his plan of keeping everyone at each other's throats until Aegon comes along, so well done Varys, point to you. Kyber next gives an update about Gregor and the fact that not only was he poisoned in the duel with Oberyn, but that poison has been thickened to draw out suffering and pain. Wow, Oberyn, you, you know your stuff. It also makes you rethink Tyene from Aerios chapter, who also likes her poisons, and we're going to see more of this kind of stuff when she makes her way to King's Landing. What does get forgotten is kyban wondering if this has been done with some sort of spell that really never gets expanded on but we do know that oberyn traveled to the east so who could he have met who could he have expanded his poison powers with or maybe he is just really good at poisons but the most important part of this interaction is kyban gets permission to use kregor for his experiments and okay we get to enjoy that he's suffering at least But we also get the background on Kyber a bit. And yes, this is the start of his dark experiments. And you can almost hear the lightning, hear the thunder out the window again as he kind of cackles when Cersei says, yes, he gets given his evil lab. And well, that is to the woe of many, many characters, even if they don't know it yet. Ferris's coin also connects the Tyrells with Tyrion in terms of payment in Cersei's mind, because she just can't see any way Tyrion could ever do anything without the coin of their house, not realizing how much she also relies upon it. With the two great enemies connected by suspicions, she starts throwing others in there too. We've already had the High Septon, now she thinks Pycelle might be on the payroll as well. Tyrion is probably behind Tywin's rotting, He maybe he's behind the rain as well, everything is Tyrion. The fact that she never thinks of Oberyn, after just hearing about his affinity for poisons, is emblematic of her being unable to properly identify the sources of her many problems throughout this arc. Then again, it's not like anyone else connects Oberyn and Tywin either, so hmm, maybe Kyburn would, he'd be the type he has that type of mind, but if he does, he's keeping quiet for now. The chapter closes with a dinner between Cersei and her uncle Kevin. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Ironically, that's how the books we have so far will close too, in Kevin's dance epilogue. They'll have another dinner. There is a lot to happen between this Cersei and that one, though. Immediately, Cersei simply assumes Kevin will go on being the faithful Mastiff, as she calls him, they he was to her father, because... She believes that she's just stepping into his shoes, or even above them. She doesn't dare dream that Kevin might not actually be that fond of her or respect her, because Kevin has always kept his tongue about Tywin. But Tywin ain't here no more, is he? Hmm. We have a quick aside about Giles Rosby and what it tells us about Cersei's way of thinking. Let me read you the quote. You've seen that litter of his, with its carvings and silk draperies. His horses are better dressed than most knights. A man that rich should have no problem finding gold. This is a prime example of Cersei just looking at the first layer and taking that as true value. There's no real thinking behind it, there's nothing further than the immediate. Again, this line of thinking is going to be repeated over and over, and it goes to show how shallow her mind is. Peter Baelish is the best master of coin we've ever seen, for his own purposes at least, and while he does like to show off, he'd likely be a poor, drab thing next to Giles Rosby and his glittering horses. Kevin lays out exactly what we said about Cersei's interaction with Mace earlier on. Mace shouldn't have done it, but Cersei's reaction is what made it all the worse. The game of ruling is a game of give and take. Go and take a look at Jon or Daenerys, all their, all their chapters are about well, more give than take, certainly. Cersei's problem is their complete unwillingness to give any sort of inch at all, even if it means an overall loss. She can't see that while making Mace's hand is a negative, it's a smaller negative than having him as an enemy. Those concessions she does make through the books are ones she considers annoyances or the suffering of fools, and nothing of actual sacrifice that will help anyone. Not politically at least, it's a different conversation entirely when we get to the kettlebacks and what she has to give up there. Kevin doesn't hide his bluntness or impatience at all. By the end of this chapter, this will probably be the most we've ever heard him speak in one go, and he immediately makes it clear that it was Tywin he was dedicated to, not his daughter. Here's a quote to prove it. Cersei had not expected Kevin to require coaxing. He never played coy with father. Case in point, Cersei is not her father. With the Great Rock that was Tywin gone, Kevin chooses now to step up from behind the curtain and admit what he truly wants. His wife, his son, home. He wanted all these things all along, surely, but was willing to give them up for Tywin, not for Cersei. Still, he agrees to stay on and help House Lannister, likely because he believes Tywin would have wanted that. But more to the point, it's because he knows that he is what's needed. He knows Cersei would be a disaster and isn't going to beat about the bush telling it. I don't doubt there's also an element of his own investment. He's been by time and side for the building of all of this. He doesn't want to see it all get thrown away by Cersei's incompetence. So while it is very easy to fall into the trap of kind of liking Kevin in this moment because of how he talks to Cersei, as we discussed in Storm, we must always remember how bad of a guy this actually is. I refer to you again to the Britain and Beef essay. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. Go and check that, please. But in this moment, he is rather enjoyable as he bluntly states Cersei is simply not up to the job. And she goes straight into denial mode, of course. This is as representative of a rule as anything else we see. Open your eyes and look about you, Cersei. The kingdom is in ruins. Tywin might have been able to set matters aright, but... I shall set matters aright, Cersei softened at tone. With your help, uncle. If you will serve me as faithfully as you serve my father. You are not your father. Yeah, see, we like it, we like it. Kevin continues to twist the knife by stating that Tywin regarded Jaime as his heir, which gets a bit confusing considering how things were left between father and son but we know how much that wounds Cersei and plays into her issues of always being passed over because of her gender. She very correctly points out how awful Jamie would be as hand, only for Kevin to masterfully volley back. Well, I'll give you the interaction here. Jamie is a handsome fool, and yet he was your first choice to be the king's hand. What does that make you, Cersei? But that quote pales to the next, where Kevin clearly takes some joy in having the freedom to say and do as he wants for once. Just because he loved Tywin and willingly stayed in his shadow, doesn't mean he's not enjoying making his own decisions. And while this conversation will look a lot darker later on when we find out Kevin's role in the Walk of Shame and also how much misogyny he shared with his brother, in this moment we can all relish someone outright saying to Cersei exactly what we've been thinking, always and within this own chapter as well. The king is my son, Cersei rose to her feet. Aye, her uncle said. And from what I saw of Joffrey, you are as unfit a mother as you are a ruler. She threw the contents of her wine cup full in his face, so Kevin rose with a ponderous dignity. Kevin can play the game, Cersei can't end of. I think that is all that quote is telling us. Kevin finishes with giving some final, solid advice. Advice that Cersei instantly dismisses because, again, she can't think further than one move ahead and is insistent that absolutely everyone has betrayal in their heart. Even now, she thinks Kevin must be on the payroll because she cannot empathise or connect with his actual rationale or motivation. Her sociopathic tendencies really come out here. And then we end with Kevin's final twist. He knows about Cersei and Jaime. I wonder how much of a relief that is for him to say it out loud. Presumably, he's known or had suspicion for years, but I very much doubt that Tywin would allow any discussion on the matter, even between the two of them. Yes, he's enjoying this moment, and it will again make for darker connections later on. But here, in this chapter, we really have to enjoy Cersei being knocked off her perch so easily, and more to the point, so truthfully. This chapter has been the big introduction to Cersei's rule in King's Landing, and as you can see, it's not off to the best of starts. But, start as you mean to go on, I guess. We like king's landing so much that let's stay there shall we for our next chapter let's begin a new arc as we start with jamie one so while cersei is still very new to us and we had new brienne last time but now we're back to another major character from storm and like i said earlier possibly my favorite story of this book jamie stormark was brilliant but i think this one might be even better true i do enjoy it much more when jamie is out in the field again but there's plenty to appreciate in his king's landing chapters and really, this one is quite a doozy to start with. Before we get to the text, in terms of frequency, Jamie just can't compete with Cersei or Brienne. He has definitely the bronze medal in, in this book. He has some large gaps here in the beginning, but he does really increase towards the end of the book. And a few times, he only has two chapter breaks, so that's pretty impressive. But I think more worthy of noting is that six of Jamie's seven chapters are placed next to a Cersei chapter, and the one that isn't, is next to Brienne. So George really wants to keep that comparison going throughout the book. For what we're going to be covering in this chapter today, it, it really is a huge chapter for the history of King's Landing. Jamie plays that role for us again, as he did before, giving us this very unique window into that time period of, of King's Landing and the ruling of Westeros. He's so valuable for that viewpoint in history. We're going to get a lot of Fire and Blood season here as well. More Volume 2, perhaps, but there's a couple from Volume 1 as well, so just watch out for those. So we begin with highlighting that Jamie is in white, just like Cersei did in her chapter. This is his position now. He's the lord commander, he's not just the son of the dead man in front of him. Let's begin with a quote, shall we? You did not kill him. I did. Tyrion may have loosed the crossbow bolt that slew him, but I lose Tyrion. So right away, the guilt weighs heavy. There was a lot of stuff that Jamie already had weighing on his soul, but this is just the next stone for him to bear to carry up the mountain, I suppose. But for now, this is also a key comparison. To tywin a man who made a career out of shirking any responsibility for deaths he didn't do with his own hands see the red wedding elia literally anything to do with gregor again all of it but here's jamie actually taking on responsibility and owning up to his part in the problem so he's already better than his father and i think we can all tell that he's trying to pay off this guilt with this physical and mental pain of staying awake all through this chapter we're going to see the effects of that the weariness the kind of hallucinations it in kind of just waving in and out because <laughs> tough thing to do to stay awake for that long. So I think he's really just trying to kind of penance himself a bit. Some quick notes from the beginning here. Let's look at first this interaction with Balon Swan and Loris Terrell. Here's a quote. As my lord commands, said Swan. Sir Loris looked as if he might have argued further, but Sir Balon took his arm and drew him off. So there's just another connection between Loris and Jamie there, because as this chapter is going to deal with, Jamie was once the young king's guard wanting to question the orders and do things differently. And he always got told off by the older ones or pulled away. It's exactly what's happened to Loris here. So that's just another connection between the two. Jamie also relishes the feeling of a sword in his hand, even if it's his wrong hand. But that's how he's supposed to be. That's the feeling he grew up with. So in this time of turmoil where he's feeling all this guilt and obviously a huge event has just occurred in his life, he can't rely on Cersei anymore, which is what he used to go fall back on. Now he's got to go to the sword. It's all he has left, even if it's not quite the same as before. Let's continue with the theme of guilt. Another quote here. The blood is on his hands as much as mine, he meant to say, but the words stuck in his throat. Whatever Varys did, I made him do. Guilt, guilt, more guilt. The presence of Tywin was so large and dominating in his children's lives that even in death, they feel the need to explain themselves to him. In fairness, Jamie thinks about Tywin a lot more than I initially remembered here. But even then, it's not that he's missing his father or even particularly sad that he's gone. It's just the guilt and the anger at Tyrion slash himself. Speaking of Varys, we get the quick replay of Jaime recruiting the spider, just to tie up that little loose end, before Jaime moves on to what is really bothering him, thoughts of Lancel and Moonboy and who knows who else. Even with his father laying dead in front of him, Jaime's mind is elsewhere, exactly the same as Cersei's was. When she was kneeling, she was thinking of power. While Jaime is standing vigil, he is thinking of Cersei. So really nothing has changed from usual, that's pretty much how they've always been. Yet again... That's Tywin's legacy. His two children are here at his funeral and they don't really care enough about him to mourn. We mentioned last week in Cersei's first chapter about how we know Jaime is really focused on that final interaction with Tyrion, how consuming that must be in his mind and of course what his freeing of his brother has actually led to. And now we get confirmation of that. He's still entirely wrapped up in it and even with his decision to step away from the two big abusers of his life in Cersei and Tywin. This just goes to show how powerful Cersei's grip was, slash, is on him. Jaime's memory of the search of Varys and their sweeping of the castle has him focusing on dragons. First, the physical remnants in terms of the mosaic, and as we know for Jaime, Ares is always lurking in the background, but this time he focuses in on Rhaegar. We get these discussions of Rhaegar's council that never happened, that he promised would occur when he returned from the Trident. So let's just imagine that that did actually happen he did come back have this council and changed everything it would have been a monumental moment in westerosi history politically nothing had been seen like it before and needless to say it would have changed the course of history as we know it obviously but also it really would have brought a new set of rules to the table it's one of our biggest the last alarms ever rhaegar sure has his issues let's admit it. but he's about a thousand steps above aries and a fair few above robert also so we can only really speculate we can't even begin can we you can't imagine how different the world would have been if Rhaegar had come back had that council and deposed or got rid of Ares in some form or fashion so very rarely do we get a clear memory of Rhaegar Cersei will do a little bit of remembering his face later on but there's nothing like this this is the closest we ever get really the only comparison is in the house of the undying and can we even turn that our memories more like a vision we don't really know the source of that so this is really our best ever look it is worth noting that we do still have a lot to learn about Rhaegar, obviously. The man is a mystery. And Jamie can still provide us that option. This is just one memory from Jamie. He's going to have plenty more of Rhaegar. So perhaps we'll get that in winds and beyond. We don't really see that mentioned very often when we talk about the future of Jamie, So that's interesting. We know from his weirwood dream and storm that Rhaegar is very, very important to Jamie personally. Perhaps he did despise the father, but not the son. I think on some level, he feels he let Rhaegar down, whether that's in terms of Rhaegar's life ending on the Trident, or for the death of his wife and children back in King's Landing, like we discussed in Storm of Swords. That same guilt is returning now when another mistake has led to another death in Jamie's mind. We also get some talk of the Trident and Jamie not being allowed to go. And imagine how much it must have incensed the young, brash Jamie, who believed himself the best living sword at the time, or soon to be, anyway, Arthur Dane's still around, Imagine how much I must have just taken it out of him that he was made to miss out on what was looking to be like the battle of his lifetime. This was the be, I think they knew this was the end of the war, this was the big clash, everyone's going to be talking about this forever. And, and Jamie doesn't get to go, Jonathan Darry does. And even the fact that Jonathan Darry died there doesn't seem to bother Jamie. He must have wanted to be there more than anything, and especially since he seemed to genuinely care for Rhaegar. He would have wanted to fight for him over just protecting Ares. Next quote here. It was queer. They felt no grief. Where are my tears? Where is my rage? So that's much the same thoughts he had following Joffrey's death. He just does not have that kind of connection to these people, and his connection to Tywin is clearly much, much more important to him than Joffrey ever was. But it's still pretty far from affection. So, like we mentioned a moment ago, he he, just—he's not having that feeling at his father's funeral. He's focusing on other things. What we do see is Pycelle having high emotion about Tywin's death, and this time we can really put stock in him actually being genuine for once. Jamie, like several others, notes how much Pisel has lost for himself since Tyrion took his beard, and it's certainly interesting to see Jamie empathise that way, given his own losses. He also declares him dying, and it does seem that way until Pycell's resurgence towards the end of Feast, even if it is short lived in terms of the timeline combined with dance. But also, the story of Old Town that we get here means a bit more to us now as well. We get even more of a description of Tyrion's rotting, and that's just going to continue through this chapter, it really is. And again, we at least get to revel in this awful defamation of Tyrion's body, almost as if he's being made to pay some small price back for all the pain he's caused. It certainly does look painful, but again, that's going to get worse in a minute, so we'll return to that. Jaime then opens the chapter back into his thinking on the investigation he's been leading into the cells and what happened with Tyrion and Varys. And first of all, we get this Renifer Longwaters quote, So I have a little dragon in me. So that's comparable to Brown Ben Plum, in which he said, I have a drop of dragon blood in me, so just take that for what it's worth. We're going to have more discussion of being descended from royal blood and that claim in the coming Brienne chapter and the rest of the book as well. We have a quote here on this, thinking back to Times Gone Past and the Black Cells. There are three others, common men, but Lord Stark gave them to the Night's Watch. I did not think it good to free those three, but the papers were in proper order. So that's referring to Jaqen, Biter, and Rorge, we know. It's good timing to pick them up again. We might have already seen Jacqueline in Old Town, and Biter and Rorge are going to appear later on. So who signed the papers for their release? Well, Jamie thinks about it. He knows who Rugen or Rugen is. He knows it's Varys. So is Varys the key to discovering why Jacqueline, Biter, and Rorge were in the back cells? Biter and Rorge, okay, we can probably guess what kind of things got them in there. But Jaqen Agar, that's much more interesting. So... Could Varys finally be our answer for that long unanswered question? I'm going to bet he doesn't know about Jacqueline's faceless men background either way. So definitely looking forward to see if that ever comes back up. Thinking on the same lines, we have this next quote. The Crown pays wages for 20 turnkeys, my lord. A full score. But during my time, we have never had more than 12. So this is probably Littlefinger taking the profits for these extra non-existent turnkeys. That's a theory that's been discussed before in many places. And it certainly fits with what we discussed in the last book about him, filtering through almost every aspect of city life to make his money, especially the middle level where these great lords really don't want to look at the details. Hence why he and Varys have been able to play this game for so long. It's just kind of funny that basically Baelish and Varys, the two big spy plotty people, (laughs) basically shared responsibility for their black cells over the years. And final note, thinking back to the uh, the turnkey people, is what he says to the, the deaths of these two turnkeys. It's near identical to what he told Mandan Moore about checking with him if Tommen gives any strange orders. Now he's got to say it about Cersei. So Jamie is still trying to establish the power of his position by removing it from Cersei. And that's a contrast to Gerald Hightower's Obey the King, not judge him. Jamie is telling his King's Guard to leave that job up to his law commander, or their law commander. It's just an irony in Jamie's attempt to keep everyone alive. That's what he says. He he did this plan, he planned all this out with Varus so that no one would die, but Tyrion and Cersei had other ideas. We we'll also get a quick flashback to his own knighting, which is obviously an incredibly key moment, his very, very quick memory. We've had an actual memory of Rhaegar, and now we get one of Arthur Dane. There's mentions of Oakenfist, the Maiden Vault, it's all there in this chapter really. But that quicker gets put aside because we get this description of Cersei coming to Jamie again and then throwing a tantrum when he refuses her sexually again, just like in Storm. We discussed that very similar situation at the end of Storm of Swords, and here likely was likely hoping that that one was just some strange enigma. That didn't count. Or maybe that Tywin's death would realign Jamie's priorities. We have to be pretty thankful that it didn't. Jamie is smart enough to know straight away that she wants something. It's a callback to their younger years. She always comes when she needs something from him. And again, we add that similarity with Storm. And of course, we know that to be true because we've just seen the ending of her chapter where everything is way harder than she thought it would be. Nothing's quite going the right way. And Kevin really has thrown a spanner in the works. So she needs to go back on that original choice of telling Jamie, OK, well, fine, I don't need you. I've got Kevin. Well, no, she doesn't have Kevin. So she does actually need Jamie. But she's not going to just come and say it that way. It has to be framed in this sexual interaction between the two because that is basically how and Jamie communicate, isn't it? And of course, the other callback to Storm is that They've already had sex here in front of a corpse in the Scepter of Baylor, And well, Jaime didn't care about it when it was Joffrey. But in front of Tywin is another matter. So that really does affirm who is the more important to Jaime here. What we do have is this quote from Cersei. If it is battlefields you want, battlefields I shall give you. So so far, this is the only hint we have on Jaime's eventual storyline. An odd wager Cersei hasn't even made the plan to send him out into the Riverlands yet. She probably just wants to bite back at him. And this is the first thing that came to mind. Either way, I'm personally glad we're taking our first steps towards that storyline because it really is one of my favourite parts of the book. Jamie also notes that there's rainbows in the, in the morning and Cersei said there should be rainbows for Tywin in the last chapter so it's interesting how they mirror their thinking. Let's return to the rotting because it's taking on a whole new level during the second ceremony in the morning. Jamie calls Tywin a horror and it'd be hard to disagree. Tywin's physical form has finally become the monster his soul always was. I believe this is the last glimpse we get of him save the procession to return into Cassidy Rock so let's just take a final second we've said it a few times already today but let's just enjoy what has actually become of this true villain his comeuppance indeed Oberyn might have lost his life but at least he put a great big score in the justice column for us all before he went now as we come to the end of this chapter we have this interaction between Jamie and Tommen when Tommen He sees what his grandfather has become and he runs, as he would as a child. And who goes after him? But Jamie. And it's the first, I think, actual interaction we really get between father and son. And it's actually, it's kind of nice. Jamie is trying. We have this quote from here. He said, a man can bear most anything if he must. And he says, Jamie told his son. So, So I think that's important that George writes it that way. Unfortunately, we also get this dark dark hint from tommen of of further abuses from joffrey and i don't want to think on that one too much at all if i'm honest we already knew enough about joffrey to assume this was a possibility perhaps even a likelihood but this confirmation is it's just terrible to think about really does settle badly in your stomach poor poor tommen unfortunately the upside is we do get this essentially lone moment of genuine care and fatherhood jamie and his son it's worth noting that in a chapter next to one where cersei is much sharper and colder and seemingly uncaring it really is key how different jamie has become and how far he's come and then cersei is there suddenly there, standing over them more concerned with pronunciation of joffrey's name than what it might have done to her younger son the sharpness we saw in that cersei chapter is even more prominent here because now we can compare it to what jamie's been doing and what's really heartbreaking is tommen is just uber polite to them both he just couldn't be nicer he's such a, a treasure although like i say we will see him push back against some of that later on but soon enough tommen is pretty much gone in favor of sibling squabbles their favorite thing to do other than you know the incest let's have this quote from jamie here ask him to capture storm's end for tommen flatter him and tell him you need him in the field to replace father mace fancies himself a mighty warrior either he will deliver storm's end to you or you'll muck it up and look a fool either way you win We've got to say, Jaime's Storm's End idea is solid. If you combine his mind with Kevin, and we can just see what could have been in Tywin's Wake, if not for Cersei, messing it all up and just not allowing that to be. So in this chapter, we've already got Jamie being a better thinker than Cersei, he obviously has a better military mind, and he also seems to be a better parent. Although, let's let's be fair, that's 10 seconds of parenting compared to Cersei's, like, 16 years. So, uh, okay, Jamie's not father of the year. I'm just saying, in this one interaction, he's better off than Cersei is. And in fact, he's better across the board for himself as well. He's a better detective than he was. He's a better thinker now of this ace advice. And, well, okay, yeah, one interaction, but that's more than he ever did with Joffrey, so he's a better parent than he's ever wanted to be. It's almost as if Tywin's death can be an opportunity to improve as a person. Hmm. Jamie takes the opportunity, Cersei doesn't, and goes the other way instead. But they do come together at the end, just for a couple of moments, so they can look forward and protect the family. That fragile peace won't last, As we've seen before, and definitely had confirmed in this chapter, that relationship is forever broken and corrupted. It has been for a long time, actually. And good for Jamie, I'd say. And there ends the chapter. And it really is a brilliant opening chapter. We really do get a lot from Jamie there. Historically, looking forward to the future in the present. Jamie's in a rough, rough spot right now, but he is, thankfully, just going to get further and further away from Cersei. And there's just nothing wrong with that, is there? If we're going to talk about what Jamie is moving away from, maybe we should now focus on what he might be moving towards too. At least, that's what many people hope. So let's go on to our third chapter of the day with Brienne 2. Right from the off, I have to admit, I am guilty of calling Brienne's first few chapters travel log chapters. And I really have to correct myself because there actually isn't all that much travelling, at least in some of them. It's more just a dot to dot on the Crownlands and Riverlands maps. We're there, then we're there, now we're at another place. And I'd have guessed we had another chapter of travel logging before we get to the double double of Duskendale and then Maidenpool in Brienne 3. But note, we are already here in chapter 9 of The Feast for Crows, arriving at Duskendale straight away. Yeah, another new place to add to our ever growing list. I think it's fairly easy to misremember what happened in Duskendale in the early Brienne pot and what happens in Maidenpool, so let me surmise very quickly. Duskendale, we have today is where Brienne repaints her shield and meets Pod soon after. Maidenpool is where she interacts with Randall Tardy, Hunt and eventually Nibble Dick Crab. So I think we can all agree Brienne 3 is when her story really gets going and it really picks up, and there's a lot more interesting discussion to be had in her next chapter than this one, but I still wouldn't refer to this one as boring, and definitely it's not a travel log type chapter. Not to me, anyway. Like in our last chapter with Jamie, this is also very history-based, both in modern times as we expand on further details of Roose Bolton's betrayal and the Red Wedding setup, along with further history of the Defiance and what turned Ares mad, supposedly, which obviously links in very strongly to Jamie's story. We begin with Duskendale being closed and barred, which is how Brienne must feel like a lot of places always are to her. It's also a quick reminder that while this chapter feels a lot like everyone poking their head back out from under the rock now that the battles have subsided. It wasn't that long ago that the full rage of war was here and claiming lives. Cast your mind back to Maidenpool, when we went through it with Jamie and Brienne in Storm. The absolute carnage we found there, and we can see why being closed and barred is probably a good idea. Straight away, this chapter promotes the idea of the small folk coming back to life, of life continuing on despite all that's happened. Farmers and peasants are coming out of the country, they still have food to sell, Tywin Lannister did not wipe everything good out completely. Like we said in Brienne's first chapter last week, there is still some good in the world. To be fair, there are caveats to that. While Duskendale has had a major battle fought next to it recently, we're still far away from where the fighting was worst around Harrenhal and deep into the Riverlands in our more Eyre-type areas that we saw there. So it's a bit easier for life to return to these parts. They didn't have the ongoing oppression and brutality that the inner Riverlands did. There's also a reason that probably more people are heading Duskendale to sell their wares. It's because a lot of the people in the countryside have already been killed and therefore aren't in the mood for buying fruit and veg. Plus there are broken men roaming the realm who most likely prefer to kill and steal for their food and pay. And that's something we'll discuss more and more in Brienne's arc. I also I just like the confirmation that in times of woe, the people flock to the institutions of safety and protection that has been laid out in the eternal agreement of this kind of feudal society. These places have been built exactly for this purpose. It's something I had to speak a lot about in the castles book, if you've had a look at that. How integral and important this agreement is, and while we're talking about a town, more than a great castle, which is what I focused on, it's the same theory. Again, that is something that's going to be explored further along in Brienne's story, especially when we hear about salt pans and when castles or forts do not stick to that agreement, and how wrong that is, Brienne feels very, very strongly about that point, and so do I. It's also at the beginning when brienne is waiting for the gates to open we have her still asking her fairly lame questions and still not getting anywhere in terms of finding a sansa she even realizes she's really not thought this through well enough in terms of thinking up an actual name for sansa or having any secondary plans she also sees podrick again and still doesn't clock anything so it's not the best opening page for promoting some of brienne's lesser skills but once we are inside the gates straight away upon entering we are greeted by the fact that there's been a recent battle but in an unusual way. Rather than just show us a burnt out battlefield with corpses everywhere, as we've seen before many a time, George shows us the billowing market of the dead men's clothes, or their armour or their swords, of which there are plenty. It's a cool technique to change up showing us the aftermath and human cost of such a battle, but also says something, as George always does, about the pointlessness of it all. None of these men are being remembered or honoured, there are no songs or statues coming, they've been stripped, and sold for parts, basically. And also, this isn't just the losers this is happening to. There are plenty of Reach and Tali men who've met the same fate. So no matter what side you were on or what you were fighting for, you've ended up just the same as the other. And I think that ties in brilliantly to the upcoming broken speech where Septor Maribold talks about how you were just signed up and told to try and kill this person because of some reason that's got nothing to do with you. And it's the same for the guy on the other side. For the 99% of the men who once wore these clothes and held these swords, that was their exact situation. There is a very, very poignant, amazing passage in the Terry Pratchett book, Monstrous Regiment, for of which for some reason I have two copies because it's so brilliant. You know how much I love Discworld if you've ever listened to me. I won't go into it now because we'll be here all day. But there is a, a brilliant passage in that about basically what I said, how you were just told to kill someone for no reason and it's the other guy for you and suddenly you're just trying to kill each other. And I'm not going to rehash it or read the quote for you now, because even though it's stapled in my mind, that is one I keep for Remembrance Day, personally. And uh, I will get too emotional reading it, but go and read uh, Monstrous Regiment, or all of the Discworld books, because, well, they're damn amazing. And I could start a whole new podcast about Discworld, I really could. I'm sure there are many. But anyway, all those thoughts become even worse when we remember the context of this battle from our storm conversations. This didn't need to happen. Duskendale was not a tactical battle. Duskendale wasn't a critical town that needed to be gained. It wasn't even a a may as well. We might as well get that on the way. Remember Rob's reaction when he heard the news about this battle. It, it, It was incredulous. Duskendale? Why the hell did they go there? There's no reason to go there at all. Instead, it was a calculated effort by Roose Bolton to thin the ranks of those who might oppose the Red Wedding while keeping his own forces alive and well, hence making the eventual slaughter at the wedding all the easier as well as having the knock-on effect of taking the north at a later date easier as well. Look at the specific sigils that Brienne picks out when she's walking through this dead man's market. The mailed fist, the moose, the white sun, the double-bladed axe. So we know that's houses Glover, Hornwood, Umber and Serwin. All houses that, prior to the Red Wedding at least, were all very pro-Stark, or at least anti-Bolton. And now all of these men serving under those houses are dead because of one man's machinations. Let's not discount the men who didn't need to die fighting them either. These are quite literally the people dying because of the Highborn playing the Game of Thrones, again tying to that Broken Man speech. It's a very emotional scene indeed, and I'm not surprised George chooses now to really hit us over the head with the Crows coming to the feast analogies. Moving past the dead man Market, we get a bit of a description of Duskendale's setup and the buildings within as Brienne continues with what is, I suppose, her side quest of the chapter, getting her shield repainted. We should note that Brienne prefers to keep the shield that once belonged to Jaime. She says it is for tactical use, and that is going to pay off later, so remember it, but there's also the idea that she was already carrying his sword, so why not his shield as well? We have a quote here from this uh, little tour around Duskendale. They stood for the seven sons of Darklyn, who had worn the white cloaks of the Kingsguard. No other house in all the realm could claim as many. They were the glory of their house, and now they are a sign above an inn. Some more cool history that wouldn't be expanded on for many years. Obviously, building towards the larger history lesson we're going to get in a moment. It's much the same theme as we had with the Dead Man Market. Where does glory, or the hope of it, normally get you? Really touching on some of the larger themes of feast in this chapter. It's a great chapter for rounding that kind of thing up. Next quote here. You'd never know to look at me, but I got me royal blood. That's the same idea as Longwater's in Jamie's chapter. This type of notion is going to pop up more and more as we go through both feast and dance. I wonder if George is trying to make the point that history has gone on for so long that pretty much everyone shares the same lineage. Or perhaps there's a larger point I'm missing about the aspirations of making one's history higher than it is, or how the nobility has seeped to the lower classes thanks to its own games. Who knows? That was all said to Brienne while she's in this small bathtub, and that's what makes her think of the huge ones back at Hound Hall and specifically, the one she shared with Jamie. That's always been a famous scene and a fan favourite, so it's really interesting to get this glimpse of it from Brienne's point of view. We have this quote. Jamie had come walking through the mist, naked as his name day, looking half a corpse and half a god. He climbed into the tub with me, she remembered, blushing. She seized a chunk of hard lye soap and scrubbed under her arms, trying to call up Renly's face again. That's a pretty good line. Given that we know Brienne's romantic feelings towards Renly, I think it's pretty telling why she's blushing about Jamie. Looking at him as half a god and half a corpse, is also fairly representative as his two sides or personalities in the series, being evil and then good. And that is painting it very, very simplistically. We know it's not so easy when we talk about Jamie, but still, representative. When Brienne visits the Dunfort to do some more searching, she finds that Lord Riker has gone off to Maidenpool with Randall Tarly, and left behind to Rufus Lee. That's a good name considering the chapter's earlier focus on vegetables. Unfortunately, he's not much help. So wouldn't you know it, we've got another maester to meet and chat to. I'm going to have to do some research at some point about how many maesters we actually meet in the other books. Because it definitely seems like it's more than usual here in Feast. And I tell you what, I've actually had a look. And this isn't conclusive in terms of who we meet versus who we hear about. But for whatever it's worth, A Feast for Crows has the third most mentions of the word maester behind only a Game of Thrones and very slightly behind a Clash of Kings. It is pretty impressive, considering its reduced length. You take that as you will. This particular mace's function is to emphasise that while Brienne might be taking this quest with the most noble of intentions, she's not the only one taking it, like we found out with uh, M- Mighty Mouse, or Mad Mouse actually, in her previous chapter. But now we learn there's a whole bunch of others. Even your generic gold cloaks are in on the game. Which makes complete sense, why wouldn't they be? But it's not really occurred to Brienne just yet, and it reinforces what we said earlier about her approach being too basic so far. We then go into our history lesson of the Darklings marrying into the Hollards, and that eventually winding up in the Defiance. There's a few lesser notes in there about lesser kings of years gone by, much like we'll find it up in the Whispers. we also have the inclusion of a Moorish wife who speaks poison into the ears around her. Some of that is good old-fashioned Westerosi stereotyping and Prejudice, but it does fit with Taina, who might be speaking sweetly to Cersei right now, but I'm convinced we'll show her poison eventually. Or, if we really want to stretch, Sorella, who is this Moish wife we're talking about here, really isn't too far from Sorella, and she is known as the late Serpent. Ah, Serpent, sounds like, Serpent, sounds like. I think I might be looking too closely to that one. The explanation also delves very slightly into the fact that Tywin was outside the town during the Defiance, and there's always much discussion about that setup. But the main point is the destruction of the Darklands and the Hollards, and how easy a line can just be wiped out Don't forget, we're still in Red Wedding territory here, so this is very uh, timely stuff to be talking about. And also explains, maybe, why Dontos was a drunk. Who wouldn't be if your entire family was executed and everything they ever owned stripped away. They're just basically erased from history. If you are the only one left to experience that pain and loss, especially as a child, you might turn to the drink also. Remember, we spoke of Duran being the only one left of his siblings and how painful that is for him. There's also basically what all the Stark children feel like. For many of them, they all kind of think they might be the only one left. And they have just seen their own line kind of erased and ended. So, so we see that feeling repeated many times. But the main point is, Dontos Hollard would never return here to Duskendale, even if he was with Sansa. And the Maester points Brienne to elsewhere. But as she told us in her last chapter, elsewhere is a large place. So it's time to think on her options. We get a nice quick Brella mention, who's convinced that Sansa's gone north. And she's not wrong in identifying what Sansa wanted to do, if not for Littlefinger. Brienne even decides to tease us readers by eliminating the North and Riverrun as possibilities. She's very close to thinking maybe she should go and check in the Vale, but instead she runs straight into Pod. Like we said last week, fair play to Podrick for keeping up and doing a good job following Brienne. He's certainly better at following than Brienne is at knowing she's being followed. It took pure chance for her to even click that she's seen this kid before, and how easily could this have been a cat's paw or a bandit or anyone? Luckily, it's just Pod, but the fact he's a 12-year-old with chainmail and a sword seems to sweep over Brienne as he runs away. We'll have to wait a little while longer to see this particular pair join up. Even with his nearly being discovered, Bodrick keeps it up though, and we've got to admire his spirit. Back at the Seven Swords, the inn, Brienne engages in some conversation with the dwarf priest, a conversation that tends to be forgotten about when discussing the key points of Brienne's arc, I don't think too many people were picking up Brienne too when they discussed it. Much as I love the opening pages of the chapter, and especially that dead man market thing, much of the content fades into memory quicker than the others, and this conversation is one of those for me. Really, it's a doubling down effort. We're doubling down on Brienne actually meeting decent people, as this priest appears to be. Certainly, he has seen horrors of war, yet keeps his kindness, which makes it all the sadder he ends up as one of the Tyrion heads that gifted to Cersei later on. Hmm. We're also doubling on the news of the Sparrows going to King's Landing, and we know how important that's going to be. The more important part for Brienne, at least in terms of her plot, is her hearing about a fool who wants to buy passage for free across the narrow sea. On first read, it's just an interesting rumour. Brienne certainly takes it as such. She's so focused on Sansa that she suspects it might be Dontos, but on benefit of reread, we know it's actually Shagwell, and that makes so much sense since the priest literally just told us about sellswords coming and raiding sets so it all fits together really nicely, it's brilliant, well, it's a classic George, isn't it? Just to really tie the bow, Brian even thinks about Shagwell a mere page later, but unfortunately, the connection doesn't hit for her. Instead of making the connection, Brian only extracts the possibility of Sansa, the name of the stinking goose in Maidenpool, and our first mention of Nimble Dick Graham. Hence our connection to the next part of her journey. It's almost like a video game quest, you've got to go and talk to this person, they'll mention this name, you go and talk to them, they say you've got to go to this castle, you go there. I have visions of Brienne being in Skyrim, being one of your followers or whatever they're called, your compatriots. And actually, and this won't mean much to you if you're not a Skyrim player, and if you're not, you should be. But there is a follower, um, one of them, I think her name's Mole. She comes from Riften. She always reminds me of Brienne. She looks very much like Brienne. She's got a quest where you've got to go and get her sword. I think it's Grimsever. You've got to return her sword to her. She was my follower for many a year. And Whenever I mentioned her to my wife, I always said, look, it's Brienne, she's following me. So, yeah, that's just a little delving into my Skyrim life for you there. Yet again, Brienne takes a moment to tease us with roads untaken, sailing to the Vale or going up to the north, both of which would be incredibly interesting to see Brienne in, especially the Vale, obviously, because Sansa's actually there. Who knows what would happen to her up in the north. Unfortunately, she talks herself into the closest option, unknowingly closing off the other two, at least so far. She thinks on Randall Tarly too, connecting herself with Sam in their desire not to go anywhere near him. Besides, Maidenpool was a wreck last time she was there, but she still makes the choice even just just because it's difficult, she's going to make it, which connects very strongly with a quote coming from her later on. We also have a quick dream of Renly's death in the tent, except it's Jamie, not Renly. Like earlier on, I think we know the symbolism of that, replacing Renly with Jamie. We also get Brienne's new shield, and that's just a hint of it so far, but it's enough to get us all excited, because we said last time how Brienne's feast mirrors the Duncan Egg Tales, and, well, now we're really there, aren't we? We've got his damn sigil on the shield. Once Brienne leaves Duskendale and comes out the other side, we find the reminders of war even more obvious than the dead man's market. We find the mass graves of the Northerners sent to their death by Roose Bolton, and it's an emotional moment to remember all that's become of Robb's reign. Because Brienne is Brienne, she stops and prays for both Catelyn and Rob, and as well as all those men who died for them. We just have to love Brienne, haven't we? Let's have a quote from her. I will find her, my lady, Brienne swore to Lady Catelyn's restless shade. I will never stop looking. I will give up my life if need be. Give up my honour, give up all my dreams, but I will find her. Yeah, we love Brienne. This is a person, like we discussed in her opening, is just willing to give up everything for a girl she's never met, who will provide no advantage for her, but she's doing it because she is right. It's also interesting that she calls Lady Catelyn a restless shade, because, well, we know how dead on that is, don't we? And Brienne will find out eventually, too. We finish the chapter with Brienne visiting the ruins of House Hollard, and finally clicking that she's being followed. She first suspects the Mad Mouse, I like Mighty Mouse personally, but Mad Mouse, before giving us some very cool backstory of her own fighting skill and the previous betrothals that she had in her youth as well. But it all ends with the final discovering of Podrick, whom we must feel a rush of empathy for when he talks about being abandoned by Tyrion, the man whose life he saved in a battle. Instead, he's now with Brienne, someone who really deserves him. So Brienne has her shield, she has the squire, she most definitely has her quest. She's more knightly than anyone else we ever meet. Let's finish off our episode today with looking at a character who, well, we've said before could really do with meeting Brienne, but also is someone that, while we are very comfortable and familiar with, is completely new in this book. We've not seen her in the background, we've not had a chapter for her yet, so let's begin Sansa 1. So far in this reread, we've been touting Tyrion's escape as the biggest cliffhanger left over from Storm, likely because we focus so much on that through the majority of Feast and we deal with it first as well. But perhaps I've been unfair, because the final true chapter of The Storm of Swords, while also basically ending on the edge of a cliff, is a huge cliffhanger, of which we had no idea what would happen afterwards. Lysa is murdered, Marillion is blamed, and Sansa discovers a whole bunch of big, huge, massive reveals about the formation of the war and what happened to her family. Unfortunately, she was being tipped over the edge of a 600-foot drop at the time, so Sansa didn't really take much notice of what was said. And those reveals, even and even if she had, she doesn't have all the accompanying pieces of information that we do. So in that regard, we'll be getting no follow-up. Although Sansa does kind of think There's some stuff was said there, i not really sure it doesn't sound quite right, but Baelish unfortunately just kind of whitewashes it out. But what about the murder? Did Baelish get away with it? Was his blaming of Marillion successful? Did Sansa tell the truth? Or did she support Littlefinger? And what happens to the ruling of the Eyrie and the Vale now? Well those questions we can and will answer. In our first of just three sansa chapters like i mentioned at the top yes she is again mirroring her young sister Three is all we get this time around making it a complete departure from all that we've known before same as we had to discuss last week about aya and the lack of aya chapters we get sansa has had six eight and seven povs in the first three books respectively not quite as much as aya but still clearly very different from what we get now and plus do not forget she was also turning up in a lot of tyrian chapters through both Clash and Storm, Iya obviously only had her own point of view. Instead, we are whittled down to just these three, and the structuring of her arc is again similar to Arya. We basically get one chapter for each sister in the beginning, middle, and end of the Feast for Crows. Sansa will have 13 chapters until her next POV, and then 18 until her last, so she's fairly consistent throughout, it's fairly evenly spaced. The slightest variation we do have between the two sisters is that while we get one final aya chapter in terms of titles this is our final sansa from here on out we are dealing with elaine alone the biggest deviation is the fact that aya's story will continue she has a further two chapters in the dance of dragons not so for sansa this is it this is all we have of one of our truly central characters yes we do have a preview chapter for wins that's true but in terms of published story just three remaining even with the knowledge that one of them is the longest chapter in the Song of Fire history, it's hard to get our mind around all that. Yet, despite having less chapters, I would say Sander's story is more complete in this book than I's is over both Dance and Feast. Complete is not quite the word to be used of either arc in fairness because we are at the beginning of this new phase of the series and these very much storylines that have yet to be finished for both of them but i think sansa's is just a little bit more set there's a little less guesswork for us as readers it's on subjects we know a little bit more in comparison to the faceless men and bravos and it just seems a little more important in terms of overall ripples to westeros i don't downplay aya here because i love aya and i'm sure i would get proven wrong with that ripples comment i just think Sansa stands out a bit more in this book we discussed this briefly back at the end of storm but as with all things in this book the Sansa we find is someone in change. She's a person of growing confidence and definitely growing investment in her skills. And crucially, someone who doesn't believe herself a prisoner. Hmm. While it's great to see such growth and progress, Sansa is definitely happier here than at the Red Keep, so that's always a plus. There's also this bittersweet sense throughout her whole arc. Something always on the periphery that doesn't feel quite right. Something that feels creepy. That thing is called peter baelish yes it's time for another one of my classic peter baelish rants i will try and keep it contained ish because well we'll have yeah okay only three chapters but all of them have peter baelish in, and i'm going to be ranting about him as we go yes if we thought we got a good window into Littlefinger at the end of storm there it's nothing to the exploits of feast we finally cross into his inner circle such as it is and learn his techniques and philosophy why and how he does the things that he does as well as some of his future plans or at least hints of those plans we will see monumental changes in the direction of the veil, and yet we are still left with this feeling of the pot being raised in boil. The veil has always been left out. We know at some point all of this is going to pay off, yet we are still denied so far. It's coming one day, but we th- we just see the temperature rising finally. It's been on a low heat all the way since Game of Thrones, very low simmer. No, 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 now the bubbles are coming. We'd best get on with the actual text, or I'll just start talking about Littlefinger the whole time. Fittingly for Sansa, we begin with a discussion on songs and singers. I don't think we need to rehash the importance of songs to Sansa as a character. But now we immediately take notice because Sansa doesn't want to hear the songs for once. They are coming from a dead man, apparently, and they are with her constantly, always making her sad. Very quickly, if we hadn't already inferred, we learn the dead man is actually Marillion, singing up from the sky sails, of which we are acquainted from a long while back with Tyrion. So then we can begin discussing how often Sansa is actually hearing him sing and how often that is just a manifestation of her guilt. And what does she have to be guilty about? Well, that's the answer to our big questions we mentioned at the beginning there. Marillion has been imprisoned for Lysa's murder. Littlefinger has walked free and Sansa clearly lied to help this come about. That weighs large on her, even with the reminder of the utter piece of scum that Marillion is. And it's a question about the nature of lies that will stick through the chapter and much of Sansa's feast arc. After all, one of the big skills she learns is the artful lie. She was once told she was the worst lie in King's Landing by a character still very prominent in her story. So all of that makes a lot of sense. And it's also a nice connection to the Jamie chapter when we're talking about guilt as a theme here. First quote of this chapter. She was a maiden now, three and ten, and flowered. It always seems like a direct dig at Brienne, that one, doesn't it? Just really hitting the nail on the head. This is what you're looking for, Brienne. It is not where you think you're going to find it. We don't waste much time getting to Peter Baelish and answering some more of those big questions. Clearly, he has gotten away with Lysa's murder. But as for the rule of the veil, we have this. He had written a hundred letters since Lady Lysa's fall. Sansa had seen the ravens coming and going from the rookery. So firstly, note that she thinks of it as a fall, not her being pushed, so already taking root there in terms of lies. But we should also take note when there's this furious writing of letters. Remember what Tywin achieved with a few ravens. Clearly, Littlefinger's grand plan has been moved into a new phase thanks to Lysa's death. Everything has been accelerated and he really has to be proactive now. He will infamously mention later on that he wanted a few more years to chill out first, but that's no longer on the cards. So we know stuff is happening up on the Eyrie for once. As dormant as it's been since Game of Thrones, the activity is finally ramping up, the ravens are going out, and there's boiling bubbles rising, rising, rising. Quick aside here. We were reminded of Peter's callous and uncaring nature towards Lysa. He calls her a wench, he shrugs off the fact that she's dead and neglects entirely to mention that he killed her and seemingly isn't bothered about hiding that fact. I suppose his thinking is now that Sansa knows so much, she might as well know a little more or not have it hidden from him anyway. He will obviously still have a wealth of personal secrets but is willing to let at least a percentage of his personal self show to Sansa. That's incredibly interesting because he's likely never ever done that before. At least we've got no hints that he's let anyone in as far as Sansa's already got. And it really speaks to the idea of her being his weak spot and potential downfall. Unfortunately, it also highlights the growing private relationship between them. We are going to need a lot of the creepy alarms to set off during these Sons of Chapters, unfortunately. Straight away, we learn that Nestor Royce is on his way up to the Erie, already setting a difference from before when this was an empty place that no one visited. The Royces are an interesting family, they're a big fan favourite. And they're made a pretty big deal of in the beginning of the series. Lest we forget, one of them was this the central character, arguably, in the very first chapter of the Game of Thrones prologue. Only for them to kind of fade from the page in recent times. In Feast, they shall return to importance. I think all of us suspect that role is only going to increase in wins and beyond. Or at least, we would hope so. For our purposes here in this chapter, Nesta will be the first voice we actually see on page since poor Robar at Renly's death. Nesta himself we have met before, all the way back when Catelyn originally arrived at the Gates of the Moon, and he was also present for Tyrion's trial. Sansa herself met him on her ascent to the Eyrie, though it was off-page, we didn't actually get to see that. Right in that first meeting with Catelyn, it was pointed out how Nesta was of a lesser branch of the House Royce, far lower on the scale than Bronzion, who also got a lot more focus early on. In this book, we're going to see why that detail pays off. It's just one of those amazing connections from George here. While it means a lot politically for the Vale and what's going to happen going forward, for the moment for Sansa it only means one thing, danger. She worries her guilt will come out, this bad thing they've done will be found out and it will all go wrong. Exactly what you'd expect someone of her age to be worried about. But there comes the first of many lessons about lying that Bayliss will try to impart. You have to know who you are lying to. He knows Nesta, knows what he wants and knows that he wants to hear the lie as much as they want to tell it, for mutual benefaction. As well as how handy it is, and you can beat or torture someone into agreeing with you. So that bit's very Cersei-Kyburnish, isn't it? Peter also shows he always wants to play the act. He insists on calling Marillion's truths lies, even though they know how things really stand. He insists on calling Sansa his daughter, although that likely ties into his own private dreams, rather than just being a good liar. Either way, it provides with one of the very few hell yeah moments for Sansa in this chapter. Here's the quote. I am not your daughter, she thought. I am Sansa Stark, Lord Eddard's daughter, and Lady Catelyn's, the blood of Winterfell. Oh yeah, we like to hear that. This is crucial. Yes, she's back to keeping these forts below the surface like she had to in King's Landing, but they are still there. The building of Snow Winterfell hasn't gone anywhere. That's going to be really important going forward. Unfortunately, it also leads to the opposite of a hell yeah moment with this. He is so bold. Sansa wished she had his courage. Yeah, get ready for plenty of these. Little heart-hurters where you really wish you could just wake Sansa up and show her the truth. Yes, it's true, she may well have been killed without his intervention, but the glorifying of a man such as this, with his intentions, yeah, it stings. Next quote. When you're a little older, many a man will drown in those eyes. Sansa did not know what to say to that. Much like in Storm, we have another example of Peter saying something wildly inappropriate to a child and poor Sansa not even knowing how to react because it's so uncomfortable. Again, heart-hurters. Another quote, we've got quite a few here. We shall serve him lies and arbor gold, and he'll drink them down and ask for more, I promise you. And ding ding, one guess why we love this quote. If you don't know, well, you should. You need to get on Twitter and find out. But also, it does make a good point. The lies serve everyone here. And in relation to that, there's another quote. He is serving me lies as well, Sansa realised. They were comforting lies though, and she thought them kindly meant. A lie is not so bad if it is kindly meant. If only she believed them. While Sansa is steered along and manipulated and kept too close in this book, we can see she does retain the sense of self and awareness that she forged in King's Landing and in her escape. It's just as important as her inner sense of Stark. She can see the overall game, not just the interaction between her and Peter. That, again, is going to be very, very important going forward. She even has a paragraph reminding herself of all the things other people have done for her when Peter did nothing. And that's just what she knows. Let's not forget our discussions pre-Blackwater when it was clear Bayliss was willing to just roll the dice and allow Sansa to possibly die if the battle went bad. She's wise enough to know they are playing two different roles all the time here, but it must take an incredible emotional and mental toll on Sansa to be processing all this 100% of the time. The stuff about her seeing both Peter and Littlefinger and trying to see the difference between them is often forgotten by the fandom, I feel, perhaps because it doesn't change her situation at the moment. She's still got no place to go and no way to get there anyhow, but it's really, really important to remember for her character. And the whole theme of a kindly meant lie is also very prominent, Links very, very strongly with Sam's conundrum at the end of the storm. Soon enough, Nestor is arriving along with his son Albar and some other knights. We've also met Albar before, he was one of those vying to be the Vale's champion against Tyrion Lannister. The meeting begins smoothly enough, but it's all very distressing for Sansa, who is constantly worried about being found out. With the Royces, we also have our reintroduction to Robert Aaron, who will have his largest limelight during this book. Sweet Robin is such a difficult character to talk about. In many ways, yes, he is a horrible little boy, but consider why he is that way. Consider what it must actually be like to be this kid, even before his mother, whom he depends on more than anyone else depends on anyone else, is murdered and taken away from him. He has that terrible sickness that completely debilitates him and has never been taught any sense of control or emotional stability. More so, I think he knows he's being used as a pawn and essentially getting played. Certainly, that's going to come up in the future. All of the scenes in which he's included are very tough just because of the overwhelming sense of pity we must have for him. Also, poor Sansa's role that she's thrust into suddenly being this kid's primary carer and essential mother, as the end of the chapter will focus on. We also have to consider there may be darker reasons for his sickness if some are to be believed, some theories to be believed. Many will point out they think this is one of Blood Raven's failed attempts. I'm not going to go into that too deeply because it's a, it's a bit of a rabbit hole, but just bear that in mind. If Tommen is abused and fought over and treated like a piece of meat, it's doubly so for Sweet Robin. At least Tommen does have a few people who genuinely care for him. Robert has now lost that. We know Littlefinger's feelings on the matter, and I'm sure we all worry what he might be capable of doing in the future. Sweet Robin is leeched constantly, he is locked in his room, it really does make for tough reading if you can bypass thinking about his personality. Next quote. He loved her just as you do. That was a lie though kindly meant. So that phrase is popping up again and again as we see Sansa go into full lie mode because Robert is crucial to this meeting and he hardly looks the part at the, me- the moment. I think we can draw the obvious commentary on the stupidity of children inheriting such titles and such pressure. It's ridiculous for any child, not just for someone of Robert's nature and ill health. While it's completely unfair Sansa has been put in this role with this responsibility, she also shows how good she is at it, unknowingly proving her value to Littlefinger. He needs her even if she doesn't know yet because, hey presto, she gets Robert ready on time and he plays this role properly. Sansa does the same, emotionally detaching herself as the words eventually come despite her high emotions just a few seconds prior. She's even mentally commenting on the acting tips that will really sell it. This is that growth we were talking about. Unfortunately, the emotion does become too high for Robert, and he falls into one of his fits. The pity really does have to be sky-high at this point. By the by, his repetition of fly really does put you in mind of the Free eyed crow, or blood raven, just to add that in there. But the presentation works. Nesta and his party buy the story completely, in part because they are already predisposed to dislike Marillion, as Peter well knows. This is just one facet of his approach, giving them someone they want to be the criminal, blaming himself for not seeing it sooner and agreeing with Nesta's notions about Lysa while still seeming supportive emotionally to his former wife. We have to give it to Littlefinger, credit where it's due. This is most definitely his arena. And we can also take a grim pleasure in all those bridges that Marillion burnt finally paying off. This is no more than he deserves. It's just a shame someone like Peter Baelish gets the credit from it. Marillion does appear, gets dressed up in all his finery, and what I suspect is another choice by Peter Baylish to have these lords resent him even more. He is below them, yet always acted above, so this is only going to inflame their hatred. Again, Peter at his best. And again, the ploy works. The torture ensures Marillion's story. The gloves hide the worst of his injuries. And also we get to see Maud again. Hi Maud. And his gold teeth as well. George and his connections going all the way back there. Either way, Peter has what they want, and we can proceed to a private drink with Littlefinger, Nesta, and Sansa. And what are they drinking? Arbor Gold with a side of lies. First, we find out Nesta is merely a taster for the Eerie being visited. Bronzion, the far more reputable and powerful Royce, is also coming, and he seems to be bringing most of the nobility of the Vale with him, answering the last of our questions from the beginning. This is the after-effect of killing Lysa. With her alive, Peter could have kept the slow game going, and the Vale was so used to it after all. But with her death, everything has been whipped into a frenzy. Lords, kept dormant for so long, can finally be active and stretch their legs a bit, and it's all headed for the eerie. But Peter Baelish is ready for it. You get the sense that Nestor wanted to impress his new buddy with this news, but Baelish is already a step ahead, and, as always, wants to prove he's the coolest cat around. Nothing bothers him. Yeah, they can come, that's fine, I'm ready for them. But he also wants to seal this friendship, and does so with his expert granting of the gates of the moon to Nestor. It's a great passage, I, I wish we could read it in full i will refrain. It's probably my favourite part of the chapter, especially when it's highlighted that the document bears Peter's name, not Lysa's, not Robert's. The explanation of all this is used to close the chapter, and again we must say, it's pretty brilliant. This is nothing new for Peter Baelish, we know this is how he operates, but to see it done so masterfully is pretty cool. He knows Nestor's desires, he knows how to tie in his own safety into the matter with the signature, he knows how to sell it with half truths about what Lysa said. He knows in which way he needs to coerce Nesta. He covers all bases. It really is a brilliant analysis of a person and a cool moment to see these details explained and I love what George does with it here. And critically, this is all being explained to Sansa. I cannot wait to see her do this kind of thing herself, hopefully with some better intentions than Baelish has here. Peter finishes off by doubling down on the need for Sansa to fully become Elaine at all times and because he is who he is, he also touches her breast and kisses her. He talks about Sansa being the great combination of his wits and Catelyn's beauty, so we know he's fully immersed in this fancy as of Sansa really being his daughter, making the attraction thing even more troubling. Unfortunately, Sansa is so taken with his obvious skill that he's just displayed that she goes along with it. Hence, in her next chapter, we meet not the Sansa we know, but for the first time, Elaine. And that is that for today. That is that for that chapter. As a quick summarization of that, whole passage between nest and baelish and i really can't get over it just how clever that is and the details that george goes into i encourage you to just go and read that specific bit even if you're not going to read anything else from this chapter look at that but that's it for today let's look forward very quickly to what we have next week before we do that i'll mention i really liked this little combination of chapters here i love seeing jamie it's really nice to see Sansa again and like i say we've got to appreciate those where we get them Brienne's chapter I really like the beginning of that and I just think Cersei's is just a great roundup and review of just how her rule is going to be going especially with the ending there with Kevin so yeah really strong chapters today and to be honest with you the structure is not so different next week we're going to have Cersei and Brienne third chapter for both of them again a chapter apart so keeping that structure up but the other two are quite different let me read you out here We'll begin with the Kraken's daughter. Yes, it's time for the Asher chapter. The one chapter we get of her in this book. And I love it. So I'm looking forward to that one. Then we'll have Cersei free. Then we'll have the Soiled Knight, Ares Ocar. Again, one chapter before finishing with Brienne. So remember what we said earlier, the, the pairing in the chapter sequences here. Brienne and Cersei next to each other again. But also we have an Ironborn and we have a Dornish. We're going to see that going forward so I just like looking at the structure of the book there so we look forward to that next week I hope you'll join us I hope you're all well out there and I thank you again for your support not just for the podcast but for my writing as well that is very kind of you send in your comments send in your notes send whatever you like we love to hear from you thank you again to my patrons and we will see you next time